0: Be speaking this morning from 1 Corinthians 8, verse 6a, which is just one phrase. We won't spend a lot of time in that passage, but it will be the foundation of what we say as we speak about God the Father this morning. We are Christians, we bear the name of Christ. We like to speak about Christ. Christ is the one that we through whom we see the Father. But it's also possible for us to underemphasize some things as we overemphasize other things, and in so doing to strike an imbalance, which then becomes an untruth. This topic has, is fresh on my mind. This idea of God the Father is, is fresh on my mind as I received some clarity several months ago. God was kind enough to show me some imprecision in my own thinking. I grew up in a church, and I grew up in a Christian school, been to college, seminary. I could answer all the right questions on a test, and I'd get 100% on, on an exam. But still, I realized, God helped me to see that some of my practical thinking was, was less than precise. Um, I found myself, two things came together to, to show me this. When I, um, back this, in January, I was teaching through the book, John, John Owen's book, Communion with God. And in that book, he clarifies how we as believers have fellowship with God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit as individuals. The lack of precision that I had was kind of almost having a fourth member of the Trinity. I had God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, and then God. Um, Now, again, I would never put that on a test, but functionally, that's what I was doing. I found myself saying after going through a a series of trials ongoing, our son has a disability, and with that goes many other challenges that go with that. And it just felt like one thing after another, and I felt like Job. And I I heard myself saying to my wife, I said, sometimes I just feel like God is against us. And we know that's not true, but that's the way it feels sometimes, and I think we would all feel that from time to time. But because I was reading through John Owen's book, Communion with God, and he was clarifying for me how we have fellowship with Father, Son, and Spirit, I found myself saying, you know, I would never say that I feel like Jesus is against me, I would never say that the Spirit is against me. But that only left me with one person. Who is it that I feel is against me? And I've, I found myself realizing it without realizing it. I was saying that I feel like there was times when I felt God the Father was against me. And that caused me to read more about the New Testament and understand more. And in so doing, I realized that um, I think for all of us, we need a better understanding about who the God the Father is and how the New Testament speaks about him as we do so this morning, we will be considering aspects of the Trinity. And as I mentioned in my prayer, walking on thin ice, dangerous ground, because we do not want to say anything that's not true about the Trinity, but we're we're getting into mysteries. The Bible explains the Trinity in ways we want to understand the Trinity, we understand the Father, Son, and Spirit. But in so doing, we want to be careful that we not say anything that's not true. And we're building on a heritage of 2,000 years of the church wrestling with what does the Bible say, and how does the Trinity relate? I think of the words of Augustine, who back in the 400s says, you cannot love what you do not know. You cannot love what you do not know. And God has revealed himself so that we could know him, and so that we could love him. As a man at our church, as I was talking about some of these themes, he said, talking about the Trinity confuses me, and sometimes I just like to just stay very general so I don't get confused. And while that might keep us from saying things that aren't true, it also limits us in our knowledge of God because God wants to be known as Father, Son, and Spirit. And if we're afraid to delve into deep waters theologically, it limits us from knowledge that we might better have of him. Let me read from, Ephes- from 1 Corinthians 8, verse 6. In this context, Paul is dealing with meat sacrifice to idols. And as Paul so often does, He brings in a deep theological point to bring clarity to a practical problem in life. He does this in Philippians 2 when he says, You all in Corinth and Philippi, you're not treating each other with humility and with kindness and with servanthood. So let me show you an example of servanthood. And in so doing, he brings in this deep theology where it says, Christ, the, the Son, emptied himself and took on flesh. Or in 1 Corinthians 11, when Paul says he's dealing with an imbalance. And in, uh, bad practices that the Corinthians had about the Lord's Supper, and he goes into this deep aspect of the Lord's Supper. But there is so much more that we would want to know, but he's bringing it in to illustrate a practical problem, and that's what he does here. in one Corinthians, as the church is dealing with, okay, here is meat sacrificed to idols. You know, in, in that time in Corinth, a very pagan, a godless society, and they would dedicate meat animals they'd sacrifice it to an idol, but not all the not all the meat would be offered up on an on the, on the sacrifice, but not all of it would be, burn, be burned up. But some of the rest of that animal would be sold at the marketplace and it would be discounted, be cheaper for the Corinthians to buy. And so the question, you know, you go to the East Corinth Walmart to buy your package of roast beef and it's this, this section is cheaper because it's been offered to an idol. And the Christian's like, is, is it wrong for us to eat this meat? It's been offered to an idol. And so what Paul does is he uses theology to help the Christians understand something that's practical. And in so doing, he touches on this aspect. And he says this in 1 Corinthians 8. Let me read verse 1 through verse 6. Now concerning things offered to idols, we know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. And if anyone thinks that he knows anything, he knows nothing yet as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, this one is known by him. Therefore, concerning the eating of things offered to idols, we know that an idol is nothing in the world. And that there is no other God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father. Yet for us there is one God, the Father, of whom are all things, and we for him, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things, and through whom we live. Now, this saying at the beginning of verse 6 is so stark that some people have used it to argue that Christ is not divine, because it says there is one God, he's the Father. I cannot take the time this morning to explain why Christ is divine and how this passage does not say that Christ is not divine. But that's not the point of what I want to focus on this morning. What I want to demonstrate is that the New Testament so clearly identifies God with the Father that almost in every position of the New Testament, when we read the word God, it's speaking of the Father. And if we don't understand this, it will cause confusion and lack of clarity in how we think about God. This is not to say that Christ is not God. But what it is to, do this is to say is that the New Testament focuses so heavily on the fact that the Father is preeminent, not in being, but in, we might say in function in the Trinity that the word God almost always stands in for reference to the Father. This is where I was helped by John Owen. For one example of that, let me turn over to 2 Corinthians, the last verse of 2 Corinthians. We will this morning survey God as one and God as Father. But just as one example of how God stands in for the Father almost exclusively, at our church, we say this verse is our benediction each Sunday, and John Owen has a comment about this. If you'll notice as we read this verse that, that, John, that, that Paul is talking about the Trinity, the members of the Trinity, but he doesn't say the Father. He says this, 2 Corinthians thirteen fourteen: The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, and the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. So right there, we see the Father is not mentioned, but Paul's clearly talking about the Trinity, and he uses God to stand in for Father. In his thinking, in Paul's writing, he almost always, when he's saying God, he's talking about the Father. And this is where I got my lack of clarity, this, this, this fourth member of the Trinity. I would read God, and I would think God collectively, or as, a, as God the Trinity, and not think specifically of God the Father. And that's not how Paul uses God, when he talks about God. When he uses that word, he's almost exclusively talking about the Father. So, what I want to do is begin with First Corinthians 8:6. We read just that one phrase, there is one God, the Father. Now, the first point, if you want to take notes, if you're doing that, the first point that Paul makes is that there, there truly is one God. This is his foundation and the emphasis that he makes: there is one God. Whatever we say about the Father or the three persons of the Trinity must fit within this theological box that there is one God. We know this. The Old Testament makes this very clear. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Or we know from Deuteronomy 6.4, Moses says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. If the, Jews, if, the, if the Old Testament Israelites knew anything, they knew that there was one God. As we mentioned in Sunday school, it took them a long time to get rid of their polytheism. They worship a false god. So by the time the Babylonian captivity was over, they were convinced monotheists, there is one God, and they were absolutely convinced of this. Perhaps this is why Paul had such a problem recognizing that Jesus was the Messiah, because he was so convinced that there was one God. And he didn't have the ability originally to have the shift that there is one God, but there's more to this one God than the Old Testament made clear. In the New Testament, there's a theologian named Gerald Bray, And he says, what we get in the Old Testament versus the New Testament, in the Old Testament, it's as if we're looking at God from the outside. We see there is one God. There are hints of the Trinity, but by and large, we just see that there is one God. In the New Testament, it's as if we're brought into the inside, and we get to see God from the inside. God viewed from the outside, he's God, as the Old Testament Israelites mostly knew him. But God, when you've been welcomed into God's family, when Christ has come to reveal the inner workings of the Trinity, we realize there's a richness to the Godhead. That inside that, looking at God from the inside, we see Father, Son, and Spirit. But from the outside, we just see God as God. So there is one God. This is very clear in the Old Testament. And Paul, if you read 1 Corinthians 8, 6 again, he says there is one God, the Father, and one Lord, Jesus Christ. And so he's almost as if he's making, he say, you know, I'm not contradicting the Old Testament, but I'm showing you a further, deeper, richer understanding of the Old Testament. There is one God the Father, and one Lord, Jesus Christ. He takes Deuteronomy 6 and He puts that in the New Testament categories. There is one God, the Father, and one Lord, the Son. So when we say that there is one God, what do we mean by that? We mean that he is one in essence, through he's one in nature. The theological term for this is divine simplicity. God cannot be divided into parts. And as we begin this brief discussion of the Trinity and then focusing on the Father, we're talking about things that are really hard to grasp. Really hard to understand. But we would say that God is simple. We cannot divide him into pieces or into parts. So Father, Son, and Spirit are united in, in being, but set distinct in person. A major emphasis of the Old Testament that God, is that God, there was one God. So for about 4,000 years, God was seen as distant and obscure. God revealed himself. God is humble, God is gracious to reveal Himself throughout the Old Testament. But you don't see the clarity of God until Christ comes. Think about some of the relationships that the Old Testament saints had with God. Man and God, Adam and God were close in the garden. God would come and walk with Adam and talk with Adam, and there was a close relationship. But after man sinned, there was a division. Man was pushed out of the garden, and it's as if God returned to his heavenly do- abode. And there was this, this stark division and separation between man and God because of sin. Yet we do see people walking with God. We see Enoch walking with God in the Old Testament. Enoch walked with God. Abraham was called the friend of God. David was called the man after God's own heart. But for all of these men, there was still a distinction. There was still a, a, a level of relationship that was not available to people in the Old Testament that we as believers in the New Testament have. There was still, when the tabernacle was built, when the temple was built, there was still the Holy of Holies. There was that inner place where the Ark of the Covenant was, where God's divine presence sat on that mercy seat. And David, even though he was a man after God's own heart, did not have access to that location because he was not, uh, he was not a Levite and he was not a high priest. So we can see that God was there and God was revealed in the Old Testament. But even for those who knew God the best in the Old Testament, there was still a level A a, a measure of distinction and separation that was present. And most most poignantly, Enoch, Abraham, David, these men who knew God so well, none of them ever called God Father. God as Father was not revealed in the Old Testament. We do see God spoken about as Father occasionally in the Old Testament, but in those very few references that are mentioned in the Old Testament, he's spoken of more as the Father of, of the nation of Israel than as the Father of individual believers. And I set this up so that we realize that when we come to the New Testament and start talking about our Father or our Father in heaven, this is, this is, a, this is a shocking statement. This is, some, this is language that Old Testament saints would not have used and did not know. When Abraham talked about God, he called God the Lord, the God most high, the possessor of heaven and earth. He called God the Lord God or the Lord. And God spoke to him and said, I am God Almighty. And so this sense that God is Father is not there in the Old Testament. Not in the way that we use that today. Not in the way the New Testament reveals that. But suddenly, when you flip the pages from Malachi to Matthew, there is a sudden shift in the revelation of who God is. Now, the oneness of God doesn't change. The fact that God is one does not change when we reach the New Testament. But we get clarity. Jesus says in John 17, 3, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. There is only one true God. That does not change from Old Testament to new. But the inner workings of the Father, Son, and Spirit begins to be more, be made clear. Suddenly, as we reach the New Testament, we suddenly start to hear about Father, Son, and Spirit. We don't hear about that. We hear references to the Spirit of God in the Old Testament, occasional uses of God the Father, really no uses of God the Son, a couple hints at that in the, in the Old Testament. So as we begin to think of God, one God in three persons, we have to remember some massively important things. We have to remember that God is spirit. God is not material. All that we say about God and his inner workings is by way of analogy. And there are some things we just can't know or understand. The harder we try to understand the Trinity, the more we'll understand, but the more mystery we'll encounter. Each of you probably has become a specialist at work in whatever field of study that you're in, whether it's music or art or science or math, whatever it is, the more you get to know about a field, the more you can appreciate it, but the more mystery that you find about it. You can, you know, anybody can appreciate music to some level, but a musician, one who's highly skilled, will understand it in a more complex way, but it will also find more mystery involved in it. And that's where we get, that's what happens when we try to understand the Trinity, we will find there's a, there's a mystery, there's a marvel, there's a wonder that we encounter, but there's also things that, that we reach the limits of our human understanding. So as we talk about a person in the Godhead, we're not talking about someone and being like a human who's in a body. We're talking about spirits who do not have bodies. As we talk about Father, Son, and Spirit, we talk about three persons, each with the full essence of the Godhead. We said earlier that God can't be divided into parts, his nature cannot be divided into parts, yet he exists as three persons. John of Damascus, he is an early church father from the 700s. He says there is one essence, one goodness, one power, one will, one energy, one authority, one in the same, not three resembling each other. So whatever we say about the members of the Trinity, Father, Son, or Spirit, has to be true of each one of them. His nature is indivisible. So what then, if God is one and there are three persons, what distinguishes the three persons? We would say that they are identical in all three, in all aspects, except in the way that they relate to each other and their, their origin, where they, quote unquote, come from. Now, when I say, where does God come from, that's, uh, that's not something that we can say with a lot of, um, clair- well, I shouldn't say with clarity. Again, God has existed throughout all eternity. But these relationships, Father, Son, and Spirit, they're eternal relationships, and yet we can just, we can talk about where do where does God the Father come from? Where does the Son come from? We say this carefully. God the Father is the source of all things. God the Son receives His existence eternally from the Father. This is called the eternal generation of the Son. Again, because we're not speaking on human terms, when we say this, we have to be careful to think that the Son didn't all exist. It says the Son always did exist. But the Bible says that the Son is eternally generated from the Father. This is not something that's clear from from human observation. But let me me read over to John, I think it's John 5, verse 24. John 5, verse 24, verse 26, I'm sorry. We know that the Son has always existed. We know that the Son is the eternal Son of God. Jesus didn't become the Son of God when he was born in Bethlehem. He's always existed as the Son. God cannot be divided. God cannot be put into parts. But this is what he says, and Jesus says in in John 5, 25, and 26, Most assuredly, I say to you, the hour is coming, and now is, when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. Now, this is the verse 26. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to have life in himself. As the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to have life in himself. Again, this sounds like Jesus' existence depends on the Father, and in a sense that it does. But Jesus, since he has all the divine characteristics, he has full deity, he receives his sonship eternally from the Father. We know this talks about a time from before Christ's birth because it says in John 1, verse 4, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. In the Son was life, and the life was the light of men. So before Christ's human existence, he had life. Where does that life come from? John 5, verse 26, we just read, as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to have life in himself. So again, these are mysteries. This is not saying that the Son is not eternal or not divine. But it is to say that in the inner workings of the Trinity, the Father has granted the Son to have life in himself. Just as the Father has life in himself, it's intrinsic, it's inherent in him as the Father, he has existed throughout all eternity. And in his eternal existence, he has eternally granted the Son to have life in himself. So the Father, in one sense, is the source of the Son, but yet the Son has all the divine characteristics. The Son is divine. The Son has all the deity of the Father. This is, these is mysterious things, this would take more than an entire sermon to explain and expound. But I want us to see the preeminence within the Trinity of the Father. There is one God, and he is the Father. Father. When we get to the New Testament, we see the word Father talked about extensively. We go from almost no uses of the word Father in the Old Testament of God to over 100 times in the book of Matthew, the Father word Father is used, and over half of them, almost half of them refer to God the Father. When we get to the Gospel of John, the word Father is used 126 times, and almost 95% of them speak about God the Father. There was this massive shift from Old Testament to New. We cannot minimize or, or confuse. When we speak of God the Father, God's my Father, that is a privilege that we as New Testament believers have, that people in the Old Testament did not have at all. Why is that the case? Because the Son was not yet revealed. And the Son, by you have access to the Father through the Son. It's when you have the Son that you understand the Father. Why is he, if if God, if there is one God, the Father, why is he the Father? Generally speaking, what makes someone a father? To be a father, you need to have a son or a daughter. We looked at that just briefly. The, the, the Father is the Father because he's the Father of the Son. The Father is the Father because he's the Father of the Son. And he's been a Father throughout all eternity because the Son has been a Son throughout all eternity. We read in the Nicene Creed. How many of you, have, maybe if you're familiar with the Nicene Creed, you have said that. It's, it's, a, it's a creed that goes back to 325 when the church wrestled out and says, who is the son? Who is the father? How does Christ relate to the father? This is stuff, this is theology that the church has believed for nearly 2,000 years. And in that, in that creed, adapted in Constantinople a few decades later, It says this, it says that we believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all worlds, eternally begotten by the Father, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, consubstantial with the Father. And so if we think in human terms, we think Father begets Son, so the Son did not exist until he was made or begotten or created by the Father. But because the Son is divine and the Son is eternal— there's never a time in which he was not the son. There's never a time in which he was not divine. Eternally begotten by the father, it says in the Nicene Creed. He was the son before he came as a baby at Bethlehem. So everything that we see in Christ is true of the father. Sorry, I lost my, Let me make sure I'm on the right page here. Sorry, bear with me a moment. The Father is the Jesus is the only begotten Son of the Father. The, fi, the, the Father has the divine essence in Himself and grants that to the Son, as we said in John 5:26. What, what then is the Father? If He is the Father to the Son, what is His disposition to His Son? The Father loves the Son, Jesus says in John 3:35. The Father loves the Son. What did the Father say at Jesus' baptism? You hear God, you, you, you don't often hear God the Father speak, but here's one time when he speaks directly. What does he say at the baptism of Jesus? This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. The father loves his son. We can think of a perfect father. The, God the Father is a perfect father. And he loves his son with perfect love. That's the kind of love that the father has for his son. This existence between Father, Son, and Spirit has existed throughout all eternity. There was never a beginning to this Trinity. There was never a time in which Father, Son, and Spirit did not relate to each one eternally and with perfect love and perfect relationship. But if the Father is the Father to the Son, is he a a Father in other ways? And I can say the Scripture says, yes, he is a Father in other ways. We sometimes speak of George Washington being the Father of our country or someone else being the Father of modern medicine. A father is someone who also is the beginning of a movement or the, the, the initiator of something new. And so another way that we can talk about the father being the father, we can say he's the father because he's the source of all things. How is the father the source of all things? He's the source of creation. Paul said there in 1 Corinthians 8, 6, he's the source of creation from whom are all things. If we understand the New Testament, we realize that the father is the source of creation, but the son is the agent of creation. Through whom, it says Hebrews, through whom he made the worlds. Christ, it says, in whom all things exist, it says of the Son. But the Father is the source of of creation. The Son is the agent of creation. The Father is also the source of revelation. Hebrews 1.1, God spoke in the past through the prophets, but now he has spoken through his Son. The Father is also the source of redemption. It was the Father's plan to make it all. It was the Son's job to accomplish it all. Paul says in Acts Acts 4.28, to do whatever your hand and your purpose determined before to be done. In Ephesians 1, we are blessed, we are chosen, we are predestined by the Father. So if there's one God, the Father, and he's the Father to the Son, and he's the source of creation, he's the source of revelation, he's the source of redemption, we can also say that God is the Father because he's the Father to his children, and that would be us. How do we come to know God as Father? He's not revealed to us as Father in the Old Testament. And he cannot be known apart from the Son. John says in John 1, verse 18, No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, who is in the bosom of the Father, he has declared him. Jesus, shortly before he goes to the cross, he tells his disciples he's leaving, and then Philip says, Oh, Jesus, please show us the Father. And Jesus says, if you had known me, you would have known my Father also, because everything that you know about me is true of my Father. That's why I came, so that you would know the Father. The Father wants to be known by his people, and so he sends the Son so that he can be known by his people. Jesus said, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Everything you love about Jesus is true of the Father. How do we personally become children of God? Because through the Son, we get to know the Father. God plans our salvation, God elects us, God chooses us to salvation, and then he makes sure that the Son, through the Son, we come to know the Father. If we then are his children, how does the Father think about us? How does the Father think about us? Look at John 17. Perhaps in no other way, place, in the New Testament, do we get to see the inner workings of the Trinity as we do in John 17, where Jesus makes his high priestly prayer. Sometimes we can think that God the Father loves us because Jesus died for us and made us acceptable to him but it was the love of the father that sent the son to bring us to salvation and i love this verse john 17:23 jesus said i and them and you and me that they may be perfect in one and that the world may know that you have sent me and that you have loved them as you have loved me that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. How does the father love us as his children? He loves us as he's loved the son. We are, we are perfect and acceptable in his sight because of what Christ has done. I think there's a tendency sometimes for us as New Testament believers to go back and live like we're still under the old Testament and that God, the father is still distant and that God, the father is still mysterious and that God the Father is the Father of Sinai, where there's thunderings and lightnings. If us, if we knew God the Father as a father and trusted him as a father, it would change the way we lived. It would change the way we trusted him. And so I believe that Satan has strong reasons for us to, to want us to think that God the Father is something other than who he really is. I believe that there's strong reasons for, for the devil, who's always causing... From the very moment of, of of there in the garden, Adam and Eve, he caused man and woman to doubt God's goodness. That's the that's the primary thing Satan wanted people to do was to doubt God's goodness, and I believe that's still the case today. God, God is good. He has a disposition of a loving father towards us, and so Satan would want us to doubt that God is good and that He has a fatherly disposition towards us. He would want us to think that God is still the God of the Old Testament the God who's far off, the God who's distant, the God who is the God of thundering and lightning. And God doesn't change in his nature. I'm not saying that it was a different God, but he was known differently then. And now he's been revealed through the Son. That's how he wants to be known and trusted as as a father through the Son. And Satan has every reason in the world to want us to think of God differently, to think of him as a God who is harsh, a God whose providence is when they are dark, when these difficult trials come in life. Satan has every reason to want us to think that God doesn't love us or God doesn't care. But instead, he is, he is a father who loved us with the love that he had for his son. John 3.16, God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Who is God? Who's being, who is the God that's spoken of there? It's not the Trinity. We can't say the Trinity loved the world so much that he gave his only son. God, the Father, loved us so much, the world so much, that he gave his only son. He is for us. It's not just God generally that's for us. It's not God the Trinity that's for us specifically. It's specifically, it's God the the Father who is for us. If it's the Father who is the source of all things, who loves his Son with all the love that could possibly be given, and he loves us as his children with all the love that he loves his Son, what are some mistakes that we can make about the Father? One of the mistakes that we can make about God the Father is is to attribute his actions to that of the divine nature. Fred Sanders, who has done a lot of study on the Trinity, has written several things on the Trinity, his precision when he speaks about the Trinity is much more precise than mine. I I tread lightly. I'm even afraid to speak about some of these things, for I'm so afraid that I'll I'll misspeak something about the Trinity today. But Fred Sanders says this about the Father. He says, one way to slight the Father is to keep reassigning what belongs to him personally to the divine nature. So we should not make the mistake to say God did this when we really mean the Father did this. So we need to be precise when we talk about the Trinity. I think we can, make the, we can be mistaken. if we, our, our, Sometimes our hymns are not very clear on the Trinity. We blend, we, we talk about God, one verse will be saying the Father, one verse will be talking about the Son, but we're not clear in our thinking. And too many times we'll say God did this or God said this, when really it was the Father that said this. So we need to be precise when we talk about God the Father. There's a book called Through Western Eyes, and it's by a Reformed theologian named Robert Lethem. And it's a review of Eastern Orthodoxy. And it's a history of Eastern Orthodoxy. You know, the church that developed, we as people and the the Protestant strain we're not Catholic, but we we, dev- we derive much of our theology through the Western strain, through the, the, the early fathers like Augustine. And that would be considered the Western strain of the church. But alongside the Western church was the Eastern church, that which developed more in Turkey and the Eastern Orthodox side of things. And this reformed theologian, Bob Lethem, he gives a critique of Eastern Orthodoxy. But at the end of his book, a history of Eastern Orthodoxy, but at the end of his book, he brings out some points. He said, what are some things that we could learn what are some things maybe that the eastern part of the church got more clear than the western part of the church? And he believes that one thing that the eastern part t- does a better job of than the western tradition is in its thinking about the Trinity. Even some of our best hymns are not so clear on the Trinity as they could be or should be. But in the eastern church, they speak of the Father, Son, and the Spirit almost the, almost all the time. Almost all of their calls to worship are not just gen- generically a call to worship to worship God but a call to worship, to worship Father, Son, and Spirit. And so they have this clarity in their thinking that we in the Western tradition do not always have so clearly. So we, we should never blend our thinking of the Father, Son, and Spirit into just thinking generically of the Trinity, but more specifically. For instance, when you sing the song, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing, who are you talking about there when you sing? Are you conscious which member of the Trinity you're talking about? If you read that hymn, it's clearly a hymn about God the Father, but we tend to think of Thou Fount of Every Blessing." That's He's the source of all things. It's the Father that's being spoken of. Whereas when we sing the song "Rock of Ages," who's that being who's speaking, being spoken of there? If you look at that hymn specifically, that's a hymn about God the Son. But see, we, we we have this tendency to not think precisely and specifically about the Trinity. And when we do that, the Father, God the Father, is often neglected or his work is underemphasized. So be precise when you sing, or when you think, or when you pray about God the Father. We can also make a mistake about God the Father by thinking of him too, too much like the Old Testament saints did, and not of God the Father. We don't want to go back to that time when God the Father wasn't revealed, when the, when the Trinity wasn't revealed. We want to live in the, in the Trinity that is revealed in the New Testament. To do that, what I would like to do, to, just as we close, is to look at some passages in the New Testament that we sometimes are not precise about when we read. And this is, I'm again indebted to John Owen for. For the sake of time, I won't have you turn there. I'll, I'll be referencing verses that we know well, but that in their context are clearly speaking of God the Father, not just God generically or generally. When we read in 1 John 4.8 that God is love, John there is very clearly talking about God the Father, not just God as the Trinity. God is love is speaking specifically, and that's not to say that the Trinity is not love or that the Spirit or the Son, but John is specifically speaking of God the Father in that passage. So look that up later, John, 1 John 4, eight, when he says God is love, the context makes it clear that he's speaking of God the Father. In 1 Peter 3.18, Peter says, Jesus died to bring us to God. Jesus died to bring us to God. We already mentioned John 3.16, God so loved the world. It's clearly talking about God the Father there, and not just God generally. So be more precise in your thinking when you read your New Testaments. Or in Romans 5.8, when it says, God commanded his love towards us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It is the love of God. God the Father is spoken of so much in the New Testament. But if we're only looking for the word Father, we will miss those times when it's speaking about the Son what I would like to do sort of as a closing prayer is read the last part of Romans chapter eight. This will be our, our, not only our, our, the last passage we read, but what I would like to do is to reread this in light of some of the things we looked at this morning. But instead of putting the word God there, I'm going to put the word father in because that is what the context would lead us to understand. If our thinking is that sometimes God feels like he's against us, we need to retrain our minds to realize it's not God. It's the father. It's the father's plan for the world that we're living out in. The father has made a plan for the world and it's being worked out through the son, but the father's behind it all. So Paul in Romans eight is, is talking about God's plan for the ages. And in verse 29, just so that we know he's talking about the Father here, I want to read verse 29. I'm going to back up and read the whole thing. Again. It says, Romans 4, for Romans 8:29, for whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. So that tells us right there that this passage is talking about God the Father. He predestined us to be conformed to the image of his Son. That must be talking about God the Father. So let's back up and starting in verse 28. Read to the end of the chapter, and this will be our concluding passage, as well as a concluding prayer. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God the Father, to those who are the called according to his purpose. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, that's the Father, these he also called, Whom he called, he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? who's, Who's the God there that's being talked about? It's the Father. Do you believe that God the Father is for you? If God the Father is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God the Father's elect? It is God the Father who justifies. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died, and furthermore is also written, who is even at the right hand of God the Father, who also makes intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are killed all day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Who loved us? God the Father loved us. That's why he did all these things. That's why he planned all these things. That's why he made sure that all these things would happen. We are more than conquerors through him, the Father, who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God the Father, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. So again, I trust in this brief overview, help us to understand that the New Testament often speaks of God when it means the Father, and it is the Father is for us. He is planning the best for us. He will accomplish the best for us. And so next time when life starts going the wrong way, when everything seems like it's against you, don't think that God is against you, but believe that the Father is a Father, And that you can trust him as a father, not just as God, a three-letter word that talks about the Trinity, but trusting him as a father, believing that he is a father who has your best interests in heart. And I pray that that will increase our faith and our trust and our love for the God who's revealed himself as father.